Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. We are going to start the 11th chapter of John. So open your Bibles to John chapter 11. And uh, I just put up the final episode of chapter 10 this morning. So it's out there. If you missed it, go get it. It's chapter uh, 10, verse part 5. We're, we're moving quickly. John is moving us quickly toward the cross. Um, as we mentioned in the beginning, this gospel is a totally different layout than the other gospels. It's less concerned with the chronology of things. It's less concerned with the history of things. But it's very concerned that we understand the, the depth of the gospel, the depth of the life of Jesus and, and what all it meant and this, the imagery and the signs. And so today in the 11th chapter, we get to talk about what is the seventh and the final sign or miracle, if you will, that John gives to us. So he uh, he does have seven. Now let's review just a little bit. There have been this will be this. Of course, the the eleventh chapter is about the raising of Lazarus. So we know what we're about to study. We're about to study the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's the seventh sign, and John only chose seven. Why did he only choose seven? Do you think? It's a perfect number. Yeah, it's a perfect number. Seven represents a a perfection in Scripture, kind of a fullness of the seven days of the first uh, creation story. Six days God uh, created, the seventh day he rested. And so this seven is is an important number. We've talked about the importance of eight, too, when we talked about eight just a couple of weeks ago being a kind of an eternal number. But John has led us through seven different miracles and signs. I want to teach you a Greek word this morning that's very important, okay? And that Greek word is pronounced semion, okay? Now, I'm going to spell it for you up here, just kind of in an English transliteration here. Uh, okay, like that. And it's, but it's pronounced semion, semion. Okay, Samion. I think I said Samion before. My Spanish creeps in there. When I see an O-N, I want to, I want to say on, and it's on. <laughs> Samion. And this is an interesting word. It's an important word. Uh, in, there, there are other words that John could have used to talk about miracles, uh, things that we think of as miracles. Uh, there's at least two other words he could have used. Uh, he could have used the word uh, teras. Okay, T-E-R, and the, the transliteration A-S, I think, which speaks to wonders, things that are wonders to your imagination. Could have used that word. Uh, the other word, that, that's, let me write that out there, that means wonders. He could have used the word dunamis, dunamis, which literally means something that is a powerful act. And that is the most common word used in Scripture for powerful or mighty acts, okay, of God or 
of others. It's used of humans. If you and I did something powerful, it would, we would use that Greek word dunamis now. But John shows the word semion. Semion. Why? Why did he choose that word? This word means, literally, signs. Something that points the way to something else. The miracles that John has given us, he chose for a reason. And I want to review those with you before we just jump into this incredible story of the raising of Lazarus. So let's think through. What was the first miracle? What was it? Changed the water into wine. That's right. Water to wine. I'll just write a little bit up here. Water to wine. What might that, if we think now in terms of this was a sign of something, what might that sign have been? Theologians have wandered about that and written about that and talked about that for for many years. Um, But I think one of the things that it undeniably, I'm going to give you some... I'm going to give you a, something for all seven of these signs, what, what I've come to believe they point to. Uh, and these are not original with me. I'm not this great Bible scholar that figured all this stuff out, okay? Um, they actually are, as far as I know, they're not original with the, the man I've learned them from either, but the, there's a, a, uh, an Orthodox Christian priest whose name is Father Lawrence Farley, who has a whole Bible commentary series uh, that I respect greatly. And he, these are his thoughts. Uh, he said, I believe the water changing to wine shows us the glory of the kingdom of God is seen only by faith. Okay, that the glory of the kingdom of God is seen only by faith. Think about that miracle with me. Did everyone that all of a sudden was drinking the later wine, the good wine, did everyone know where it came from? No. No, nah, and they never even found out. But a few people knew where it came from. And a few people were in wonder and amazed. The bridegroom himself knew it. So the people that, that, that were in the know were the people of faith that believed. When his mother Mary told him to go do it, she believed. She knew he could do it. Uh, when the steward got it, we can, you can bet when the steward dipped into that water, he knew that a miracle had just happened. And he had faith. So the glory, John is trying to point us to the glory of the kingdom is for those who have faith. It's seen by only can be seen by those who have faith. Now the second miracle was what? Do we remember? Healing of the royal servant's son. Oh, okay. The royal servant's son. Okay. Um, what might that miracle have shown us? What Did sign would it point to? Uh, how? I just had the thought and lost it. He he didn't care who you were. He would heal no matter what. Okay. Very good. I think there's a stronger indication here, though. Remember how that happened? Faith on the part of the the royalty, the the centurion or whatever he was, that royal. This faith. So salvation, I think this points the way to show us that salvation comes through faith and trusting Jesus alone. He was willing to just trust Jesus' word. You don't need to come. He's willing to trust Jesus' word. I'm, I'm, uh, I have yeah. what I tell him to do, and you, you can do the same. What's the third? The healing of the paralytic, right? Mm-hmm. 
Remember the guy that was laying by the pool by for the, all those years? Pool, yeah. Paralytic, yeah, if I could spell that. What might that point to? The healing of the paralytic. Remember the, the paralytic, remember how he laid by that pool and 27 years or something like that. 28, 30, I don't remember now. But it, the point was he had a system that he believed in. If somebody would just put him in that water when it gets stirred up by the, what they believed was an angel stirring up the water, then healing would come. So he believed in a system. But Jesus came along and taught him faith in a new way. Okay, so it points that salvation is in trusting in Christ and his way, not the tradition of the old ways. Salvation is, is trusting in Christ and his way, not the tradition of the old ways. Number four was the, the uh, multiplication of the bread and the fish, right? The multiplication oh, yeah, yeah. miracle. Okay. He told them to put, the, put their net in on the other side? Uh, no, the multiplication, what he, the fish and the bread, the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So now that was uh, a miracle that points us to what? Was that teach us about salvation? Well, it's... Teaches us that we can only be fed by Christ. Okay, his the, the bread and the fish, they're sustenance for living. Jesus will, in, in the very next chapter, started talking about the bread of his body. Okay, we can only be fed by, salvation is only fed by Christ. Okay, he's the only one. It's his body, it's his death that is going to truly feed us. And we see that carried on in the miracle of the Eucharist, of Holy Communion. We are fed by Christ and him only. His, his body, his blood, is the source of the true food that brings salvation, that brings life everlasting. Okay, so the fifth one was walking on water. Walking on water. I think John is trying to show us there that, that the kingdom of God, that Christ is, transcends all other kingdoms. Christ, when he walked on water, if you remember we talked about this, might have been back in Mark when I studied it with you years ago, but uh, we talked about the fact that water was seen as this uh, mystery that no one could conquer. If you could conquer the water, you could conquer the world. If you could travel across the seas and boats and figure out how to transport your army across the Mediterranean, you could conquer the world. But Jesus comes walking on water. He was not, he, he's supernatural, that his kingdom is supernatural and that it transcends all that. There's no political might, there's no military might that can conquer the mystery of the seas of the world. But I Only think, Christ. I think the, the, the next part of that walking on water has more depth to it and meaning to me, and that's where he asked Peter to walk on the water with him. And Peter <coughs> took him Excuse on me. faith and stepped out until he... Peter went out in faith, faith didn't he? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's he, a lot, he, lot we can learn from that one, keeping your eye on Jesus. Exactly. But there's a transcendent meaning to this miracle. John, what I'm trying to show you is these signs, they point us to a deeper meaning that's not just yeah. there on the surface. That's why it wasn't just this mighty act. It wasn't just this wonder of amazement. 
It was, a, it was a sign. And John's trying to show us that, point us to that sign. That salvation, the kingdom of Christ transcends all other kingdoms, all other categories. Um, number six was the, we just finished that one uh, not too long ago. That was the healing of the man born blind, right? Yeah. Healing of the blind, especially because he was born blind. And I think in this one we see that if we look at that story, that wasn't as simple as Jesus just saying you're healed. Do you remember what he did? Yeah, he spit. He made the mud, put it on his eyes, and then what? Made him go wash. He gave the man instruction. And the man's instruction had to be followed. So the man had to obey. And we see some deeper level of meaning here. We see that the salvation in the kingdom of God only comes through obedience to Jesus Christ and obedience to his command. And his command was to go, and his command was also to be washed. There's some symbolism of baptism there and, and the beauty of our washing and being washed clean and made new. Uh, so Christ intentionally incorporated water into that miracle, the washing of water, uh, as well as the obedience. If the man had not done both of those things, he would not have been healed, had to obey. And then finally, we come to the seventh sign. Today, we're going to look at the seventh sign. Let's look at this. This is a lengthy chapter, a very lengthy chapter. It takes 40-some verses to even get through raising Lazarus from the dead. So there's an awful lot to talk about, so we're going to take it slow and not... I was tempted to just read the whole thing, and we know the story. I think most of us here know the story well enough that we don't have to do that. So you know the end of the story already. Lazarus lives, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's stop and just take a few pieces of the story. Let's begin. Uh, I think I'll read the... Uh, let me start with the first five verses. Let's, let's start with just the first five verses alone and see what we can learn from that. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Stop there. Who are Mary and Martha and what do we know of them from the gospel accounts? What do you know about Mary and Martha? Who are they and how do you know anything about them at all, other than this? They're sisters. They're sisters? Do, do any of the Gospels? Close friends of Jesus. Close friends of Jesus, and we know that because? He stayed there. Stayed there from time to time. Do, uh, do all the Gospels talk about Mary and Martha? No, only Luke and John. Only Luke and John mention Mary and Martha. Aren't they very obedient? What? Aren't they very obedient in how they believe in Jesus and trust oh, yeah. in the Lord and stuff? They show, they show a lot of faith. In fact, we're going to see that in this very story, how they show a lot of faith and, and obey. Uh, so there's a beauty to their obedience and their faith, early faith. They, were, they must have come to embrace Jesus early in his ministry uh, to become such close friends. I mean, how would you like it said of you 
that that you were close friends with Jesus. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, oh, that oh, that people would say that of us today. You know, our our relationship is should be so alive and so vital that that we are close friends with Jesus. Yep. There's a point in God, John's Gospel when we get later on when Jesus is in his high priestly prayer before the cross and he's talking to him. He's going to say, "I call you friends," mm-hmm. and and that's a beautiful thought. Uh, there's a hymn. There's a hymn about friendship with Jesus. Um, you know, there's that aspect of God and Christ as our God, that he's, he's our Lord and he's our King and he's our Sovereign, but yet he's also our friend. I don't think there's too many people that can say they're friends with the King. Well, I can't say the King of England because England doesn't have a King with the Queen of England or when they had a King. I mean, there's not too many friends. Royalty usually doesn't have a lot of friends. It's, it's a strange, you know what I mean? Uh, the positions of high power usually don't have lots of friends. Always lonely at the top. It's lonely at the top is the way it's been said, yeah. Um, oh, that's a funny phrase, it's lonely at the top, because according to a guy I really love to listen to, Zig Ziglar, oh, yeah. he says, I'll see you at the top. <laughs> he wants us all to get to the top uh, emotionally. I love Zig Ziglar's uh, enthusiasm for life and positive thinking. But... Uh, but yes, it's, it's said of Mary and Martha that they were close friends of Jesus. And, and it says here that um, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Doesn't Jesus love everybody? Absolutely, absolutely. But John wants us to make a point here that these people were special. They were special because, not because you and I aren't special also, they were obedient. They were loving. They were kind. They were hospitable. They opened their home. They embraced him. And we're going to see in this story how they embraced him as Lord, the Lord of, uh, of their Lord. Mm-hmm. So let's come back to the top now. Um, we know that Lazarus is their brother. We know he's ill. He, we know they live in Bethany. <coughs> Bethany is where? Israel. Bethany, Oklahoma. It's Mecca for some Nazarenes that went to Southern Nazarene University. I have a jacket that's from SNU, Southern Nazarene University, that I wear, and people stop me all the time. Did you go to SNU? I said, no, just just the bookstore. Yes. We didn't get to Bethany when we were over there. We didn't. I'd like to know about where it is. Yes. Do you remember when we stood on the Mount of Do you remember when we stood on the Mount of Olives and we looked at the remember standing there on the Mount of Olives and the different places we went in the, on the Mount of Olives and we looked down through the valley and there was Jerusalem. Well, Bethany is just over the hill behind us. Behind, okay. It's to the east of the mount. It's on the eastern slope. You could actually get there. We just didn't get there, but you could actually get there. It's not too far from where we were. On the eastern slope, we were on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, so we could look at the eastern gate of Jerusalem. So it was on the eastern slope. It's just basically a suburb of Jerusalem in that sense, um, not too far away. And where was Jesus at the time of this? Where, where have we been following Jesus in the last couple of weeks? Do you remember? It was a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan, so not the same Bethany. He was beyond the Jordan River, which reads literally on the, on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River, where John had 
uh, began baptizing. That was really not Israel. That was part of uh, uh, Gentile lands, Roman lands. Uh, Perea, I think, is the name of the area. But he was over there, and he had went there because he was in Jerusalem and Judea, and he was going to get stoned by the Jews. It wasn't time for him to die yet. So he went where it was safe. He went back to his roots, back to where he was first baptized. He spent a couple of months there. And now he gets word, the messenger comes. A messenger comes to tell him. The message is that, uh, well, before I get to that, there's a, there's a very important note I want to make here. And that is that clearly John believes Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were well known to the readers. And he wants it to be clear to them. That's why he points. This is Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. He points it out. He, he assumes that they're going to be well known. He wouldn't mention people that really weren't that well known. Now, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, it says in verse 2. Remember the story of the, the beautiful alabaster jar and the ointment of oil that was broken and spilled out and poured over Jesus' feet? There's worth a, a year's salary. Yeah, that story's in this chapter. Okay, We're going to get there, but he's mentioning it now before we even read it. Why is he mentioning it now before we've even read it? Well, I guess the, he's mentioning it because of the dedication that Mary and Martha had for him. Sure, yes, he is. And he's also mentioning it because he believes his readers know about it. This was a famous incident. Oh, yeah, that's true. He can point it out. It's not giving away a story. Remember, John's not telling a chronological story. He's telling us a meaningful story. And so he tells it at this point. It's, it's as if to solidify who these people are. This is, this is that Mary. She's the one that wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. And, and, and what, a, what an amazing thing that was. And we'll, we'll study that more when we get to it, what that symbolizes her studying, her um, wiping his feet with her hair. So, verse 3, the sisters sent him a message. They sent him a message that said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. That's an interesting message. It's all that John tells us is in the message. He whom you love is ill. Can you imagine these messengers? You know, they've been on foot. They've come across country, probably at least a day's journey, uh, somewhere in that range. Uh, I can't say for sure, but uh, it wasn't like we do here where you could just journey anywhere quickly. And they get there and they say, Lord, here's the message. We have a message from Mary and Martha. And uh, he said, what's the message? And he says, he whom you love is ill. We don't know whether it was written down or whether, yeah, we don't know if it's written down or verbal or whatever, you know. But uh, he whom you love is ill. What does that say about Jesus' relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus? It was very close. Must have been very close. He whom you love. Of course, we know Jesus loves everyone. But there was obviously an affinity here, a special affection here. And, and why... What do you suppose they hoped would happen when Jesus got the he message? Jump up and he whom you love is ill. Yeah, yeah. You, I think they're appealing to that special relationship, aren't they? Yeah. You know, I think they thought we're close to Jesus. I know he can make the difference. He can keep our brother from dying. I know if we tell him, he'll come. So there's there's a lot behind those few little words. He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, the scripture tells us that. Jesus has an answer. He actually replies. Now, the, John doesn't say that the messenger left and then took the answer back, but we can imply that. 
Jesus had an answer. And the answer was, it's not going to end in death. This is going to be okay. This illness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by the means of it. Now that's an interesting answer. It wasn't, okay, you on ahead, tell him I'm on my way. Have faith, hold tight, tell him I'm on my way. Wasn't that at all. In fact, his actions indicate just the opposite as we're going to learn pretty quickly here. So think about that answer. This is not unto death. It's so that the Son of Man may be glorified by means of this illness. And they make the note here uh, that Jesus loved Mary and Martha. I think his message back to them was one of comfort. It would be comforting to say, I care. The Son of Man cares. This illness is not unto death, but it's for my glory. He wanted to send a message back. He didn't ignore them. But he didn't do what they expected either. So let's, let's turn the page and think just a little more here. This would be uh, verse 6. Carry on the story in verse 6. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go into Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were but now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. So we see Jesus' response here, and he has this kind of cryptic, uh, metaphor here about light and day that we'll get to in a minute, but think about his response with me. When he heard he was ill, he stayed two days longer. Why? Why do you worried. think he stayed? What? He wasn't worried. He's not worried. He knows he can, Lord of life, he can raise him from the dead. Yeah. What else might he say? Probably to set it real good that Lazarus actually died. Okay, what do you mean by set it real good? Well, if, if he, he waited two more days, and now he's going to go back to Judea, which is going to take two more days. So in that four days, everybody that's around Lazarus in that whole area there is going to know that Lazarus has been put into a tomb. He is dead. Uh-huh. And that then Jesus comes in and, and raises him from the dead is going to make a very big impact on everybody. Yes. Where I thought you're absolutely right. Where I thought you were going with also was to add that by making sure he was dead, oh, yeah. he's making sure. That, I mean, there's no question that That's he's dead. Right. He, he he's decaying. They, we we get there. Remember the story says that yeah, you already stinks. He stinks. <laughs> you know. I you know. I I don't know how long a body lasts before it starts to smell. I just don't have knowledge of those kind of things. Thank you. Three days. But they'll. The, the gases in your body start yeah. to break down your body. But in the heat of where they lived... Probably in a day and a half. Probably pretty bad. Um, but here we have here we have this interesting aspect where he says, nope, I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to stay where we are. And waits a good strong two days. And then he goes back. But then he, he says to his disciples, hey, let's go back to Judea. It's time. Let's go back to Judea. And their response is... 
understandable considering they left there in threat of death. Yes. Okay. They they said, well, let's, what, Master, wait a minute. Why are we going to go back there? They were just about to stone you. Stone us for being with you. Why? Why Why would we go back there? What does Jesus say? He says, I'm going there to wake Lazarus up. He uses this metaphor. Now, he uses this metaphor. He has this cryptic answer. He says, uh, look at verse, uh, verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Mm. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, there, there's a little bit, we lose a little bit of this because we live in such a lighted world. But think about the difference between day and night. You know, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, we have street lights. We have, you know, you, you, it's, just, it's just not that dark. But if you're out in the country where there are no street lights and a more primitive area, darkness is dark. It's easy to stumble. You don't want to go walking without light. Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? I thought that was interesting. I thought, hmm, let's think about 12 hours in the day. Well, you know, I'm not a meteorologist. I don't know if it's exactly 12 hours of daylight. I didn't take time to look that up. But it's probably pretty close, isn't it, maybe? The night and day are split fairly equally. You know, we play with the clock. We have daylight savings time and, and all of those kind of things. But, but it seems like probably, it's probably pretty close to split in half in a 24-hour day. But then I thought, hmm, 12 hours in the day. What do, we, what do we already know that John thinks about Jesus? What is one of the great metaphors that John gives us about Jesus? He's the light of the world, right? That's right. Jesus is the light of the world. So when Jesus is talking about the day, could he perhaps be talking about himself? Yeah. And when he's talking about the 12 hours, could he perhaps be talking about these 12 disciples, these 12 men that are following him around? Interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. See, this is a metaphorical, almost an allegorical way of thinking that when you read the book of John, always be thinking for deeper meanings than just what's on the surface. Jesus isn't telling them what they automatically already know. Hey, dummies, if you walk in the daylight, you can see where you're going. He's not worried about that. He's trying to teach them something here. Are there not 12 hours in the day? I'm the light of the world. He's trying to teach us, because John, you know, John wrote this not only for them, but for us today too. Do the hours of the day tell the day what to do? Somewhat. It's kind of a silly question, isn't it? Do, do I don't think they do. The hours of the day tell the sun what to do. No. Two o'clock in the sun doesn't say, hey, oh, yeah. go back and be ten. Let's make this day last a little longer. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the hours of the day don't tell the day what to do. The day controls the hours. That sun's going to move where the sun's going to move. And nobody's going to change it. Except God. It says in the Old Testament that he held the sun <laughs> still for a while, you know. But the day's going to do what the day's going to do. Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. And you 12 hours, you guys follow me. There's a little metaphorical meaning there. Beautiful metaphorical meaning. And uh, he is the light of the world. In other words, what is their fear? Why do they not want to go back? Well, fear of death. Fear of death. They don't want to die. It's dangerous back there. Right. Jesus is in essence saying, you're with me. What can happen? 
and they're probably thinking a lot. <laughs> we, don't, we don't get stuff. But, but we, he, he, he wants to tell them, it's okay. You can follow with me. And we, we see some fascinating, let's, let's read a little further here. It's just, I love this story. So then in verse 11, thus he spoke, and then he said to them, this Jesus is who John means, thus Jesus spoke, and then he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> I can't help but smile at Thomas's words there. So let's think about this interaction here and what we might learn from it. First of all, Jesus is responding to them in their thought that let's don't go. And he wants to make, I think the first point, I probably didn't see this point originally until I did a lot of deeper study, but it's, this is just to point out how we must read the Bible. Pronouns are very important. Jesus doesn't say, my friend Lazarus is dead. He says, our friend Lazarus is dead. Our friend I think there's something we can learn from that. What is maybe Jesus is teaching here? We're all in this together. Okay? This should be as important to you as it is to me. Because we're all brothers and sisters. We're all part of there, There's a communion. The ancient church and the ancient creeds of the church, one of the, one of the lines in those creeds, if you look back on your Nicene Creed that I printed for you on that card, believes we, we uh, believe in the communion of the saints. We're all interconnected. You and I, people across the world, and even heaven and earth, those who are dead but really alive in heaven. Okay? And so if Lazarus is dead at this point, it doesn't matter. He's still our brother. He's still our friend. And we must go to him. So let's don't miss that beauty of that personal front. But he says he's fallen asleep, and they totally miss that metaphor, don't they? They, they, the metaphor is for death. But, you know, if we look at, that's a common metaphor throughout Scripture. Uh, in the Old Testament, it says that the, when the ancients and the patriarchs died, they were buried with their fathers. Sometimes you hear a phrase, they slept with their fathers, he slept with their ancestors. Uh, if we look at the book of Acts, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, it, every time the word death is talking for someone's death, it mentions when Stephen, the great martyr in the seventh chapter of Acts, when he was stoned to death, and it says, and he fell asleep. Okay? Mm-hmm. When we, when we uh, read scripture at funerals, at gravesides, one of the scriptures that I read a lot at gravesides is this uh, scripture in the Thessalonian letters, uh, second one, I think, where Paul says, but we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep in Jesus. And he adds that phrase, in Jesus. What is he saying? There. He's trying to help us to see that death is not a final state. 
I'll take you back to John chapter 5 when we read John chapter 5.24 that was so important. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, just a haphazard reason that, that, that the scripture uses sleep as a metaphor for death. Because when our bodies are asleep, we eventually awaken. Right? Same way in death. When our bodies are asleep in death, they will eventually awaken. Death is but this doorway through which we pass through, he tells us in John 5, 24. We do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death and into life. That's John 5, 24. And so, too, our body may lay for a while asleep, even decay. But it, too, is going to be raised. It, too, is not dead forever. So there's this, we must enter into the metaphor. We must enter into this understanding that that death, he's teaching us a lot about death here. Death is not the victor. Death is not final. And uh, they don't get it. They just, they, they couldn't have imagined. There's no way they could have imagined that Jesus was on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. First of all, they don't know if he's dead or alive. We learn later in the story, we're going to learn that he died right after the messengers left, basically. But they don't know that yet. I'm sure Jesus might, but they don't. And they think they don't, they, they can't imagine. Well, hey, if he's asleep, he's going to recover. Come on, he's going to wake up in the morning. What are you talking about? He must have gotten batteries. So he wasn't that ill. He's just asleep. We don't need to go get stoned to death for this. Jesus says, I'm the day. You're the hours. Follow along. This is important. He's our friend. That's what we can hear. Now, into that, they, they don't get it. So he just finally has to tell them, hey, guys, Lazarus is dead. He knows he's dead. He knew he was going to die. And he waited on purpose because he needs to bring glory to this situation, to glory to the Father, glory to God for the situation. Now, he says plainly in verse 15, I'm glad I wasn't there. What would have changed had he been there? What if Jesus had been there? Dead instantly, if he wanted to, or healed him and kept him from dying. Right. Yeah. Would would have been another miracle, great miracle. Okay, it's always a great miracle when somebody's healed, but it wouldn't have had the same impact. Now, why didn't Jesus? Can we all agree that Jesus could have given a command and said, "He could have stayed where he was in safety and said, Lazarus, come forth,' and Lazarus could have come out of that tomb." Did Jesus have to be there to raise him from the dead? No, no, he didn't. We learned that in this healing of the servant's son. Yeah. But, but he wanted to be there, even though it was dangerous, because he knows the ultimate goal of his, <laughs> his calling is to the cross, but yet he knew that this was a final, this was, the, this was the seventh sign. This was the sign of perfection. This was the end of all signs. He's going to raise the dead. And there's going to be no question about the fact that he's dead. There's nobody going to say, <coughs> nobody's going to say, well, he wasn't really dead. He just, as they do with Jesus, some people say he just swooned and was laid in the tomb and came back. You know, No, 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 this body's decaying. He's stinking. So, into that we see, let us go. Jesus says, let us go to him. And so Thomas, gotta love Thomas. Thomas says... <laughs> Can you see him looking at his brother saying, let's go, we can die with him. Now, I don't know for a fact whether to read doubt into Thomas that they're going to live through this or whether to read great courage, but I do read faith 
I do read faith. At some point, Thomas is at least willing to say, I'm going with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't feel too safe just staying behind. If Jesus is going, I'm going with him. Come on, guys, let's go. Better to go with him, even if we die. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I can't read. Because when we look at Thomas's life, what do we learn about his life? Well, he's just a go-getter. He's a, he's a tremendous, if you look at sometime, I, we don't, in our church, we haven't, we don't have a rich tradition of, uh, of reading the lives of the saints and reading the lives of the apostles after, you know, after scripture. But there, you should study the lives of these apostles at what history teaches us and what tradition teaches us about their lives because they're fascinating and we can learn so much from their lives. And Thomas was one who gets a bad rap, I think. You call him the doubting Thomas because he said in the upper room, of course, we'll get to that eventually. Uh, the Thomas, when we study John about, you know, unless I can touch those nail prints and see it for myself, I won't believe it. But uh, I think Thomas was a man of great faith. I think Thomas ended up, his journeys took him to almost all of the known world at that time. As far as India, uh, if you go to India today, Christians, uh, there are Christian uh, denominations, uh, it's not a good word, but ancient Christian churches that are organized around the faith of St. Thomas and the faith that he delivered to them. I mean, he traveled along and he went even to uh, Africa and places. He went to most of the known world. He probably traveled more and took the gospel more places than any of them. We can't know that for sure, but that seems to be the preponderance of thought on the lives of the apostles. So, great man, Thomas. Great man. Gets a bad rap sometimes. But I think he shows that it's better to go die with Jesus than to stay here where we think it's safe. Yeah. Think about that. I think that I think that's what Thomas might be saying to us in that. And saying to his brothers there in that in that particular uh, special message. Um, I, I want to make a point here in, in our kind of our closing minutes today that uh, that I think is real important. And again we, we need our Greek to help us here. Um When the scripture, when John was so careful to say that Jesus, let's go back to uh, a couple of verses ago. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. And in, in the, up above that, in verse, what was it, verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Um, the word for love. This scripture has a lot to do with the word for love. Okay. The word we, we know that in the word in the Greek there are three words for love. Agapao, phileo, eros, eros. If we get our Greek O's are really O's, and I have such a hard time with that. What was the second one? Phileo. Phileo. Phileo, Phileo, I should say Phileo, Philadelphia. Agapao, Agapao. We English tend to say Agapeo, you know, or maybe it's just our Midwestern slang that says that. Um, Agapao, Agapao, Phileo, and Eros. Eros, physical love. Human sexuality, physical love. 
The word erotic comes from that base word. Phileo, brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You see that word. You see that Greek word. Agapao, unconditional love. The love of God. Mary and Martha, when they're, when they're uh, saying the one whom you loved, they're using that word phileo. They are applying to that deep love of brotherly love. You can't let your brother die. You've got to come. But Jesus uses the word agapeo. Mm. So, I think love enters into this whole story. He has much to teach us. We need to be loving our brothers and sisters. Um, but we also want to learn to love as Jesus did. And Jesus' love goes beyond, uh, goes far beyond just a brotherly love. He has the love of God because he is God. Now, I think it's best for us to stop there. Um, we're going to see when Jesus arrives at Bethany, uh, starting in verse 17, but we'll hold that over for next week. Um, I, I want to make, make sure I made a couple of points here. The, there is this very important point about loyalty that love incorporates. Okay, If we truly love people, if we truly love our brothers and sisters, we're loyal. Thomas shows us that. I'm going to be loyal to Jesus. I love him. And I'm going to be loyal to him. And I'd rather go die with him than to stay behind and save my life, so to speak. Um, and this importance that Lazarus is our friend. We're all brothers and sisters. We must love one another. We must care for one another. One of us is sick. We must go. Um, so much so that later on in, in the scriptures we know that it, it says, that, what does it mean to you if someone says, oh, your brother is sick, well, be well, go on and be well. It's not, you, you've got to touch them. I think John speaks of that very thing in his letter, uh, his epistle. So, we're learning a lot about the sign, this final sign, the seventh sign in the Gospel of John. It's the sign of all signs. It's, it's the sign of raising the dead. Because Jesus is not only the great healer, he's not only the great physician, he's not only the, the, the great miracle worker, he is the creator. Which is harder, to raise someone from the dead or to create something from nothing? Both. <laughs> One would say, you know, ne neither can be done for us, so you know, they're both difficult for us, impossible for us, I should say. But for Jesus, raising him from the dead, it wouldn't matter whether he'd been dead three days or three years. Or you see what I'm saying? Because Jesus is the creator. It wouldn't matter whether the body's decayed or not because Jesus is the creator. If he could make that body from literally as Adam was from the dust of the ground, he can take all of that and put it back together and take that decomposing flesh and make it whole again. Um, so I think there's a, as we reflect, as we move through this story, as we reflect on it, I think there's a lot for us to reflect about this, uh, what Jesus wants to teach us about death and about life in the kingdom. All through this book of John, he's teaching us life in the kingdom. All these seven signs, 
are about life in the kingdom of God. How we get there. What, what salvation is like. Uh, what the kingdom is like. How, how we're fed in the kingdom by the, the, uh, the bread of life. Uh, the fact that it's a, trans, it's a transcending kingdom above all. Uh, everything in the kingdom is better. You know, water to wine. Well, you can say in some respects, water, wine's better than water. It's a more, you know, it, it, it represents a, if water represents a sustenance of life, wine represents the joy of life. So in the kingdom of God, it doesn't say we're going to drink water. In the kingdom of God, it says we're going to drink wine. Okay? In the, in, in the banquet halls of heaven. So it'll be all right for us Nazarenes then. <laughs> Wait a second. We're supposed to be in the kingdom now. <laughs> Better not open that hornet's nest. We're at the end of the day here. We can't do that. <laughs> There's always grape juice. <laughs> well, the, any questions over some of this? Uh, talk about signs and where this journey we're on with Jesus to see Lazarus. Any questions, thoughts? The, where did you get the, what verse? Yeah, that's him in. Oh, oh, um, this is the word for, um, is there a verse here? That... No, no, this is the, not in this particular one, but I want you to, yeah, um, when you, when you look at the whole gospel of John, this is the word that he used, I mean, not exactly in the verses that we've read this morning, yeah, um, but in the whole gospel of John, when he talks about these signs, these miracles, um, Good question. Brad? Yes? When you die, do you, your soul goes immediately? To I, I, the soul? Yeah, I mean, it, it's there. I don't believe, I don't, I don't believe there's any such thing as soul sleep. I think only the body sleeps. So I think to be die, Apostle Paul tells us to die is to be present with the Lord. So, yes. In some, now, we don't know what that looks like. We can't know exactly what that looks like. But we can know that whatever it looks like, it's with Jesus. Kind of like Thomas. Hey, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I want to be with Jesus. Then, when, when at, at, uh, at uh, uh, at the rapture, mm-hmm. it says that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and that all of us who are still alive will meet him in the air. Mm-hmm. And that tells me our bodies are going to be in heaven in a, in a spiritual way. And that, it says also that, that we will, will be known as we are known. Otherwise, people will be able to recognize each other yeah. in a spiritual body. The, the idea of that... Our bodies I, are going to be in heaven. I would, call, I would call that, theologically, I would call that the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. Not just not not the rapture. Right. That's a theological term exactly. that's not always that's not in the Bible. No. But the idea that when Christ returns, the dead will be raised. Exactly. Those of us who remain, Paul says, that's in that Thessalonian verse that I read by the grave, will be caught up with them together in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort one another with these words, Paul says. So this idea that we are going to be some there's going to be when Jesus returns, there are going to be some people left alive. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to be alive. And those people will not have seen physical death the way the rest of us are that have died already, but they will in a sense die in that they will be translated. They will become different. Whatever that looks like, in the blink of an eye, they will become different. 
They will be glorified bodies, not human bodies. And just like the ones raised are not raised human, they're raised glorified. glorified yes. Now Lazarus is about to be raised human, yeah. human to human. Okay, so we don't want to get don't want to get misled there. Lazarus is not going to be glorified. Lazarus is going to die again. Why do we know that? Because Christ has not returned yet that second time. So it appears in this world that death reigns, but it doesn't. For those that, like the signs, for those that have eyes to see, for those that have faith to hear and obey, there is life here and then even beyond death. Powerful message, death does not win. Other thoughts, questions? Great questions. Yes. I always thought like the resting place is like when you die, you're asleep. So you don't know how long you're there. And then at the second coming when you rise, then you're awake. I would say no. No, I think scripture teaches us uh, the opposite. The body lies in the ground. Mm -hmm. But the, the us, the real us, is so much more than our body. It's the soul and the spirit combined with our body. So only a part of it lies dormant, if you will, and even decays. But the, the soul never sleeps. The soul is instantly alive with Jesus. And that's why Paul says, for me, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to stay here with you guys or to go ahead and die and be with Christ because to die is to be in Christ's presence somehow, some way. So there's no soul sleep there's no dormancy to our existence. What, what will we know about our bodies? Well, we'll know we won't have them. Okay, We'll, we'll know, as, as uh, Pat said, there's a scripture that says, we will know as we are known. Paul says in the Corinthian letters, he says, we look through a glass dimly now. In other words, we can't really see what reality is on the other side of this life. But we know we will be known as we are known. Because he will know us. We will know who we truly are. So, in a sense, when we, get, when we die, when we exit this world, this life, we will be more fully alive than ever before. Amen. We will be alive like we've never known what it meant to live. And even beyond that, there will be an either fuller experience of being alive when we're reunited with our bodies. Then it's going to be even fuller. I mean, only greater. Again, these are things we can't imagine. We can only imagine, let me put it that way. They're things that we can only imagine. Um, I think that's what a songwriter said, I can only imagine what it will be. You know, that's, that's a beautiful thought. Exactly. But yeah, I, th- I think it says just the opposite of what you're thinking. Nothing to be scared of in death. I, I have to tell you about this story as I close. I met yesterday with a 97-year-old man who lives on North Terrace, 1500 block of North Terrace. He, he's, his, I'm doing his wife's funeral on Saturday. She was 98 years old. They lived in their own home. They've lived in that house since 1953 or something like that. And uh, he, told, he sat there and told me the most beautiful story of his and his wife's life. Their only son died when he was 49 years old. They've literally outlived almost all their friends, almost all their family. There's two grandchildren in other parts of the country, two great-grandchildren. 
that, that will thankfully be able to come back for this service. But he, he sat there with tears in his eyes and he told and he recounted mirac- almost, I won't say miraculous, but clearly things that God did preveniently in his grace to keep him and his wife together through these 98 years. And he says, I don't know why. I, why me? And we reflected on the fact that they really never went to church very much. They went to church at Delrose Methodist years ago, which it, it, the culture in the neighborhood changed around that, and it just didn't feel like the change, and they, they felt lost. And, and they just never really... He said, I've always been a little bit of a loner, and I, we just, we're just not terribly social. We a couple of close friends, but never really needed anything besides ourselves. And, and he sounded a little bit regretful that he hadn't had life in the church, but, but at the same time he witnessed to this beautiful belief in God. It talked about the prevenient grace of God that had just, that was my word, not his, uh, prevenient, but the idea that he was kept for a reason. And, was, and he just remarked it all the way through, even that he was able to be by her side when she took her last breath and everything. And he did it with tears in his eyes. No doubt in my mind that this man loved God and loves Jesus, but somehow missed the beauty and the joy of a life in church. And I say that to you to, it just, it was just so poignant to me that people don't, we just can't judge people. People don't always understand that what the church is to be about because of what they see the church as in our culture today. And we're so far from what the original church was and what the church should always be that uh, what we have, the community and the koinonia, the special love and care that we experience in this room and that we know of, there's a lot of people don't have. Doesn't mean they don't know God. Doesn't mean God doesn't know them and God's not reaching them. Okay? Um, and I just felt so blessed to get to know this guy. And uh, he still can drive his car and get up and do a few things. And, and he said, and as I left my card with him, and he said, I'm going to give this card to my son, my grandson in New York when he comes. I'm going to tell him, when I die, call this guy to do my funeral. <laughs> you know, he's 97. I couldn't say, oh, that'll be a long time away. <laughs> And I just, I just simply said, oh, I'm so honored. Thank you, I'm so honored. But uh, it, it just whew, gave me a new heart for why. If we believe what we have is powerful as church, if we really believe it's beautiful and it's joy and it's filling and it has purpose, there's a lot of people that need to know it. Yeah. Amen. A lot of people that need to know it. Yeah, What's Tommy. really special about that is that you got the opportunity to get to know him before that day comes, so when you do speak at his service, oh, you can just speak volumes. You're right, I, I, and I'm worried that I'll forget it. So I, I had the busiest day I've ever had yesterday. Yesterday was the busiest day of my life, I think, I've ever lived through. And I've had no chance to write any of that down. Because this guy, this guy told me much about himself along with her, but I'm just relating the stories about him, taking notes on him, not on her. And I'm thinking, oh, I gotta go back and write that down. I gotta go back and write that down, so I don't forget because he told me some, right? And I, and I really believe probably what I want to do is just follow up with him and sit down with him now before you know after this funeral's over in a couple of weeks. Just let's go have coffee and let's talk about you. I mean, I learned so much about life just from this guy. Oh you know, you know, and if you go back into the 
to the old days. And, you know, think about the New Testament with me. Think about people that lived off and they didn't have the church on the corner. They didn't even have the synagogue on the corner always. They just had themselves and their family. But yet they loved God and they knew God and they were led by God. That can happen today. It's happened in this man's life. Now, do I believe his life would have been fuller and richer with a good church experience? Absolutely I do. Absolutely I do because the church is the body of Christ. But let us never think that the church is only bound to these walls because the church is a mystical thing. John's teaching us in this in this book about that. Yes, Rhonda. Um, I just I was talking to my friend Sarah this morning that's normally here and um, she asked if we would pray for um, she has an Okay. Okay. Well in my closing comments I'll closing prayers will do that. Well hey thank you all for being here. Um, I was late. I started late. I tried to end a little bit early and now I'm late again. So sorry about that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together with this group and being able to just share life together and to share your word together in the power of your spirit. I pray that your spirit would cover over anything I've taught that's wrong and, and just lead us into all truth. And, uh, and especially for this unspoken request of Sarah's, Lord, we pray and lift up to you and Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.